0: Whether you physically dance or not, not physically dance, Uh, Simchas Torah was a Simcha for everybody—man, woman, child. Uh, The Torah was given to every single person uh, that is Jewish, and uh, the Simcha is a Simcha for all—all of us, uh, all of us. Um, In fact, uh, the Rebbe says Eldad has a very beautiful thought. Again, you you probably heard it, but uh, I'll just say it very quickly. It's not. I'm going to talk about today but a little just as an introduction after post-Yobdiv the Rebbe asked he said that uh, Hashem gave the Torah to the Jewish people on Shavuos really so why don't we do some why don't we celebrate the Torah on Shavuos Why, why, why now this is not the time that God gave us the Torah so he said when we got the Torah on Shavuos we were tzaddikim we had purified ourselves we were so righteous We were like Adam HaRishon, before the sin of Gan Eden. In fact, we would have, had there not been the Ched Egel, we would have been immortal. We would have lived forever. We had reached the level before the Ched of the Eitz Hadass, Mamish. And that is the Torah that he gave to us. We were like angels. But that Torah, we lost. We lost that Torah because of the Ched Egel. Moshe smashed the Luchas we were no longer tzaddikim we lost everything but then through the process of tshuva culminating in Yom Kippur when Moshe came down with the second Luchas we got a different Torah I mean the, I mean, the content was the same but this is the Torah that's given to the Baal tshuva this is the Torah that's given to the person who lost his relationship to God but gains it back the Torah of the Baal tshuva is a greater Torah Because, you know, I'm sure you've heard the expression, maybe your mother told you this, you can only make a first impression once. The Torah of the tzaddik is very precarious because once you've sinned, you're no longer that tzaddik anymore. You'll never be the tzaddik who never sinned once you've sinned. So the Torah that's given to the tzaddik is always at risk of being lost, as we did lose it. But the Torah that's given to the Baal Tshuva can never be lost. Because even if I sin again, Hashem gives me the opportunity to do Tshuva again. So in a sense, that Torah is mine forever and ever and ever and ever. And Simcha's Torah is considered to be the culmination of Yom Kippur because the Alter Rebbe says, on Yom Kippur, Hashem taught Moshe the 13 midas of Rachamim, but he brings him the Zohar that he taught him one mida every day. So if you count it, Simchas Torah is the 13th day from Yom Kippur. So that means the final mida of Rachamim was niskala, was revealed on Simchas Torah the final forgiveness that got us the Torah of the Baal Shuvah. You know, there is, um, so this is this part I'm adding a little bit, there, there we didn't, didn't mention this part, but uh, one of the books of the Treosor, the Twelve Prophets, is Hosea, the Novi Hosea, not Yehoshua, Hosea. And Hosea was given a very, very strange, almost bizarre command. He was commanded by Hashem to marry a prostitute. He was a (laughs) Navi. Marry a prostitute. And he listens to Hashem. He marries a prostitute. And she continues to engage in prostitution after she's even married. And he has children from her and the children are given special names. And it's hard to understand what is Hashem telling him to do all this. Now it's a machlokas. Some commentaries say this was a dream Hashem gave him so he didn't actually do it. It was a... But whether it's a dream or he actually did it, what is it supposed to show? So the Gemara gives some additional information that we don't know from the psukim. It says, when Hashem told Hosea, give the Jewish people musr, Hosea was impatient. Hosea said, you know, been there, done that, you know, give them musr, do tshuva, what's going on? I mean, listen, they never listen anyway. Uh, you, tell them it, uh, you tell them Monday and they sin on Tuesday. Let's just forget the whole deal. Let's go to another nation. Pick another nation and make a relationship with them. Unlike Moshe Rabbeinu, right? When Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, I'm going to make you a nation and I will erase them, Moshe says, if you're going to erase them, you're going to erase me. I don't want a separate deal. But O'Shea actually says, go to somebody else. He didn't say go to him. He said, just go to another nation. So Hashem wants O'Shea to understand. This amazing thing. That, you know, when you're in love with someone, you can't just drop them, no matter how unfaithful they are. He wants him to experience what it's like. And for some reason, he became passionately in love with this person, whatever it was. And Hashem said, why don't you get rid of her? She's unfaithful. And he said, yeah, she's unfaithful, but I can't get rid of her. I love her too much. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, now you understand my problem. In other words, <laughs> in a way, maybe we shouldn't say it this way. Hashem is stuck with us. Meaning to say, the love is so deep that even if we're not deserving of it, even if we're unfaithful, because first of all, the mushal of an unfaithful wife is a common marshal in Tanakh for the Jewish people who are not serving Hashem, meaning we're like a wife who commits adultery to her husband. That's a, a metaphor that, that is used throughout the Nevi'im, right? So that's the idea, that uh, this is what Simcha's Torah celebrates, the fact that we are so connected to the Torah that we can never lose it, even if we sin. And that's greater than Shavuos because Shavuos was the Torah. This going back to the Rebbe's point. Shavuos was the Torah that was given to the Tzaddik, and Simchas Torah is the culmination of the Torah that was given to the Choser B'tshuva, and the Torah of the Choser B'tshuva can never be lost because you can always be Choser B'tshuva, right? You can always be, you can always be there's, there's no way you can lose it because the potential road of gaining it back is always going to be there, right? So that's kind of the. The great joy of 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 Simchas Torah, and uh, that's why you find. Um, I mean, I remember uh, when I was a kid in the old Soviet. I was not in the old Soviet Union. But I mean, but I remember seeing this. That this was a time when you, you weren't allowed to practice religion in the Soviet Union, but they allowed one day a year. They allowed Jews to get together to celebrate the communist government, and that day was Simchas Torah. Interesting And if you ever see pictures, it, it probably. YouTube videos or something, I don't know. Uh, but this goes back to the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the early 70s. Thousands and thousands and thousands of uh, Russian Jews would go to Moscow and they would be dancing in the streets uh, and whatever. I mean, and these were not Jews who were religious. They were not, I mean, maybe a tiny, a tiny bunch were religious secretly, but the vast majority, must be 98%, were not religious at all. They didn't know about Shabbat. They didn't know about Kosher. They didn't know anything. But somehow, in their heart, they knew that this was the day to rejoice with the Torah. It's very, very amazing, the power that Simcha's Torah has, because it, it connects us to something that is beyond our consciousness. Right, It's rooted in the godly soul, right, and the Nebuchadnezzar kids, etc. And uh, that goes beyond what a person is consciously aware of in their mind. Right, So that was the joy of, of, of Simcha's uh, Torah. In Eretz Israel it's a little more complicated because we have everything in one day. That's People point out that it's complicated because, um, you know, Shmini at Saras is also the day, day of Yisker when we, if, if God forbid, a person doesn't have parents, so we think about, uh, you know, we say Yisker. And that typically whole Shiloh. Why you say Yisker on Yom Tif? It's actually holds because you're not supposed to be sad on Yom and yet Yisker is often, you know, a time of... Memories of the people that we've lost. So in the Chutzlaret, you have you know Yisker Day, and then you have some Chastorah Day. Although Chabad has Hakafas has Haserus even uh, in Chutzlaret, uh, but in Eret Yisrael we combine everything. We have Yisker and Hakafas in the same day. So that's an interesting juxtaposition of different types of uh, different types of, of emotions that people have. Okay, so that's a little bit of, of a hakdama as we leave the special, sacred Zaman of Tishrei and we enter the regular year of Cheshvan, But once again, we have to know that everything is Kaddish, every moment of life is full of great possibilities. Okay, so now we go back to our halakhic areas. And uh, again, I'm gonna talk a little bit about uh, a mitzvah that appeared in yesterday's Parsha, and we'll talk about different aspects of it. Uh, we know that uh, the Book of Bereshis has very few mitzvahs, right? Most of the 613 mitzvahs, they begin in Shmos. Uh Sefer Bereshis, Chomish Bereshis, has only three of the 613 commandments. Three. Uh, the, first of the first of them is in Parshas Bereshis itself, that when Hashem created Adav and Chava, he commanded them, pru or avu, Um, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is actually a mitzvah in the Torah called pru urvu, a mitzvah to have children. Now, just to complete the list, uh, the the two other mitzvahs that are in Chumash Barashas is number one, (coughs) the mitzvah to give your male children a bris, a bris mila, when they are eight days old. Because when Hashem told Avram to have a bris at 99, he said that your children after you should circumcise at 8. So that's the mitzvah of bris milah, which is, of course, a Torah commandment. It's so important that we even do a bris on Shabbos if it's the eighth day. And the third mitzvah goes when Yaakov is fighting with the angel, the angel of Esau, and the angel of Esau hits him on the thigh. And although Yaakov is victorious, but the next morning he's limping and to commemorate uh, Yaakov's encounter with the angel, uh, Yaakov was hit where the sciatic nerve is. So the halacha is that uh, we are not allowed to eat the sciatic nerve, and the Hebrew for that is called the gid ha Now you may say, well, I don't like to eat any nerves. I don't eat any nerves, (laughs) that's true. But the sciatic nerve is a very, very large nerve that is in the hindquarters of the animal. And it's very, very difficult to remove that nerve. It takes a very great skill. So as a result, Ashkenazim do not eat any, any cuts of meat from the back half of a cow, meaning they sell it to Goya. Now that means, for example, uh, there are a lot of good meat cuts that come from the hindquarters that you cannot get in kosher, in normal butchers. Uh, uh-huh. A sirloin steak. You cannot get uh, kosher sirloin steak because it's from the hindquarters that contain the git hanasheh, And you cannot even get filet mignon, which is considered to be the most expensive of steaks. Now, it's interesting. It's not that the meat is strafe. The meat is kosher. But since that is the part of the animal that has the git hanasheh, Ashkenazim have a minog of not doing it because it's very difficult and time-consuming because it's a nerve that branches out, all sorts of little branches, and you have to have a very skilled butcher. Svartim, on the other hand, uh, do have a mesorah of uh, deveining uh, this Gidah Nasheh, and in Israel, even many Ashkenazim do, so you can actually get, although by and large, I think the meat here is inferior to that of the United States for various reasons. But you can, in fact, get cuts of meat here that you would not be able to get in America, uh, such as sirloin and and whatever they call it here, uh, and the like. Okay, so those are our three mitzvahs, fruitful and multiply, the mitzvah of brashmila, and the iser, the negative commandment, of not eating the gid, hanasheh, the sciatic nerve, and the like. Okay, but uh, we're focusing on the first of those three mitzvahs, And that is the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying, a mitzvah to have children. So first of all, let me just raise a very, very simple question. How can there be a mitzvah to have children? I mean, whether I have children or don't have children is up to our HaKadosh Baruch. I mean, Hashem can't command me to have red hair. Hashem can't command me to have uh, whatever it is, blue eyes. If I don't have blue eyes... So, Hashem, you are commanded to have children. So, you have to say, just logically, that Hashem is not commanding you to have children, but Hashem is commanding you to make the effort to have children. I mean, that has to be. In other words, what is the mitzvah that Hashem is giving me? It's not to have the kids, but it's to try to have the kids. So, for example, a person is supposed to get married. A person generally... Now, I'll talk about birth control, but generally speaking... Again, we'll, we'll talk about many, many exceptions, but generally speaking, you don't, do, you don't try with birth control because there's a mitzvah to have, cho- have children, or the way I'm saying it is a mitzvah to make the effort to have children and don't do things that will prevent you from having children. Now, interestingly enough... All right, so let's define the mitzvah that way. Okay. Now, interestingly enough, although Peru, be fruitful, is in the plural. It's in the plural. So Hashem is speaking to Adam and Chava. But halachically, it's very fascinating that the mitzvah is only on the man and there is no mitzvah on the woman. A man is halachically obligated to try to procreate, a woman is not halakhically obligated to try to procreate. Now, that means that a man is obligated to find a wife with whom he can have children. So, that actually means If God forbid, let's say a a woman, a younger woman, let's say, had a hysterectomy and she would not be able to have children, a man who has not yet had children, and I'll talk about how many kids, would not be permitted to marry a woman who could not have children. Because he will not be able to fulfill the mitzvah of pro or vote. But vice versa, if a woman could have children, she would be permitted to marry a man who couldn't, because she doesn't have a chiv to have children. The khiev is on the man. So I as a man must marry a woman who is able to have children. You as a woman I mean, obviously you'd want to have children, but if for whatever reason uh, you wanted to marry a man who could not have children, you would be allowed to marry a man who could not have children because the mitzvah of Puravu is on the man. It is not on the woman. Now, let's stop for a moment. What's the logic? Of, first of all, how do you know that? How do you know that? So the way the Gemara knows it, derivation-wise, is because you look at the whole passage, it says, be uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and conquer it. Conquer it. So it uses uh, the term conquest for procreation. Procreation is like conquering the world. And since that's a military term, and women are generally not involved in military conquest, and procreation is described as conquest, Since women are not benot kibush, they're not people who conquer, so therefore they're exempt. Now that doesn't give you a reason, that just shows you how you know it. But what's the reason for it? So it's interesting, we have two opposite reasons. I'll give you two opposite reasons that move in in different directions. Reason number one is that pregnancy and childbirth are life-threatening conditions even today in an industrial society? I mean, God forbid, there are women who die in childbirth to this to this very day, and I don't mean just in Africa. I mean even in uh, you know modern modern countries. Baruch Hashem, it's rare. It's not Baruch Hashem. It's not at all common. But but it does happen. It's not uh, totally impossible. So the Torah is never going to tell a person, you must risk your life. The Torah can tell a man, you should find a woman who's willing to take on these risks, but the Torah is not going to tell a woman, you must put your life in danger. That's reason number one. Reason number two is the other way around. and That is, mitzvos are often given when our natural instinct might not be to do it. Now, for whatever reason, and this is a generalization, a woman's desire to have kids is often more powerful than a man's desire to have children. Part of it might be because a woman has a biological clock. A man can always have the sense, eh, I have plenty of time. I can have kids when I'm 70, when I'm 80, when I'm 90. A woman knows that her time runs out. There's a biological clock. There's something called menopause. That comes at some point. So the Tyra didn't need to command a woman to have children, to want to have children, because instinctively that is exactly where she would go. In her teva is a very, very strong desire, an emotional need <laughs> to have kids. But Dafka, a man who might think he could push it off. The Torah says, don't waste your time, do it. In other words, the idea is that Hashem gives mitzvahs when instinctively a person would not otherwise do it. In fact, I, I sometimes say that this is the idea of a minion. Uh, you know, uh, one of the famous differences between men and women, an old, you know, they say men, like, uh, men refuse to ask for directions, and women like to ask for directions all the time. That's why GPS's were invented by men, so we don't have to ask for directions anymore. But I remember, you know, in the olden days, before there were GPS's, if I'd be going with my wife, going somewhere, so as soon as we're in the driveway, she would say, oh, maybe you should stop and ask directions. I have to be lost at least two or three hours, and then I break down and I I ask somebody, but you know, I don't like to ask directions. Now, this is an old cliche that men don't like to ask directions. But there's actually a very deep reason for this, and it's based on the Zohar. The Zohar points out that when Adam was created, now this is a machlokas, how were Adam and Chava created? One opinion says, first there was Adam, and then Hashem made Chava. The other opinion was Adam and Chava together. But the Zohar is going with the first opinion. First there was Adam. And then it was not good for man to be alone, so Hashem made Chava from Adam. So that means, says the Zohar, that Adam's first experience in this universe was to be alone. Adam's essential identity was aloneness. Chava was born in community. Adam was born in isolation. And that has an impact. That first second of your existence kind of defines your spiritual essence. The male, again, these are generalizations, is preoccupied with autonomy, control, not needing other people. So when I have to ask directions, that's an assault on my essential identity. I need somebody. i got to be vulnerable. I got to admit that I don't have the answer. So men don't like to ask directions because their essential identity is bound up in autonomy and control. But didn't Adam ask for a partner? Well, uh, there the, are midrashim, but the Chumash does not say that. The Chumash B'davka does not say that he yes. It's Hashem said it's not good for men to be alone. Now, a woman was born in community, so for a woman to ask other people, that's what she is, who she is. Mimela, here's what I want to suge- suggest. Why did Hashem say that we have to daven with a minion and the like? Because Hashem is telling the man, there are certain things you cannot do by yourself. You could be the greatest rabbi in the world. You cannot say Kaddish without other people. You cannot say Kaddusha without other people. You cannot read the Torah without other people. In other words, minion is a lesson. In the need to reach out to other people and connect, and you cannot be self-sufficient in your avoda has Sashem. So it could be, one might say, <coughs> that the reason why a woman does not count for a minion is because she doesn't need the minion. What minion is supposed to represent to a man, a woman already has in an intuitive way the notion of connecting to others, reaching out to others. And it goes back to the idea (coughs) that the mitzvahs are often given to be misakein, certain defects or deficiencies in our natures. And therefore, when there is no defect, there's no need for tikkun. Right? You only have tikkun when there's a pagam. Right? You know the Hebrew words there. Tikkun is is to be misakein, to rectify a Pagab. <clears throat> so, pru or er vu, going back to, uh, rep, uh, to appropriation, it's the same idea. Since the woman instinctively has a stronger desire to have children, she doesn't need the tikkun of mitzvah to do it, she'll do it anyway. The man, if he wouldn't have a mitzvah, might uh, keep on going and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. <coughs> then there'll be too By the way, this does raise a very interesting problem. I just want to mention, um, this does raise a problem halachically for older male bachelors. Uh, let's, just say, let's just say a man is already an older male who's not married. <coughs> He's, let's say, 45, 50, 55. Now, he, he does have a mitzvah pro pru rv. Now, so he's going to say, well, I can only go out with young women who are able to have children. I'm not going to go out with a 50-year-old who's already gone through menopause. Now, in a literal halachic sense, he is correct. But this would be a very, very foolish proposition. And the reason why it's foolish is, simply, pragmatically, if he's going to insist that uh, the woman, let's say, has to be under 40 the chances of his getting married are going to drop down to almost zero. So at some point, it's better to be married even to a woman who cannot have children, for sure, than, to be married, than not to be married at all. So that's a very difficult question. When does, you know, if, if you know, someone is a rabbi advising this older bachelor, <clears throat> when do you tell him, hey, it's great that you want to have children, but you have to be realistic? Or when do you say, hey, go for it? I mean, on one hand, you could say, well, if you have a munah, Hashem is going to give you exactly what you need. But on the other hand, part of our hishtaglis in life is to make decisions that are reasonable. That's kind of a difficult issue that you often have with older bachelors. An older bachelor is more likely to find the shidduch with an older woman closer to his age but that older woman, closer to his age, might not be able to have children anymore. So what's the issue? I, I've seen, you know, I've seen it both ways. I've seen bachelors who will say, "I will only date uh, women below below the age of 40, no matter how old they are." And unfortunately, most of them are still bachelors even today, uh, many years later. But once in a while, it, ha- it actually happens. It actually happens that way. So it's hard to know. Okay. Uh, how many kids do you need to have or, uh, in order or for the man to have, let's say, in order to fulfill the mitzvah? So we actually have a number. The number is one boy and one girl. That until the family has a boy and a girl, they have not yet completed the mitzvah, <clears throat> they have to keep on going. Now, what that means is, even if they have seven girls... No boy, or seven boys, and no girl. They have not yet fulfilled the mitzvah of pru Urvum. Okay? Now, let's assume that they did fulfill the mitzvah. Let's assume that you know, maybe they had twins right away, a boy and a girl, or they had a boy and then a girl, or a girl and then a boy. Is there a mitzvah to have more than the minimum, right? The mit- now obviously from your own observation, you would assume that there must be a mitzvah, because uh, many from families are kind of hara, uh, large families. But the question is, what's the mitzvah? So, in other words, why is there a mitzvah to have more than this boy or a girl? I have a boy and a girl. Why can't I just stop at that, uh, at that point? Well, I think they tell a story about a, uh, a woman, uh, uh She was taking her kids out for an outing and she was exhausted, and she climbed on a bus, and she had like 10 kids following her, uh, one after another, and she was so exhausted, almost fainting. And uh, the bus driver said, why don't you leave half of them at home? And she said, I did. You know, sometimes we have large families. Uh, but the, the answer is that there's, there are two things. There's a pasuk in the Torah, That's Pru'ervu. And that's in the Torah. That's Doreza. That's one of the 613 commandments. But there's another Pasuk that's not in the Torah. It's not in the Torah. But it's in the prophet Yeshayahu, the Navi Isaiah. And this Pasuk says, Lo tohu b'ra'ah. Hashem did not create the world to be desolate. The word to actually appears in Parshas branches too, but this is a, a different passage. Lo to la sheves He created the world to be inhabited. Inhabited. And uh, in poskum, we often refer to this pasuk as a shorthand, the pasuk of la We just have that one word. Now, la adds <laughs> something to pruervu. The pruervu is Makuyam with a son and a daughter. La says, even after you have a son and a daughter, there's a mitzvah from the prophets, not from the Torah, a mitzvah from the prophets, to have as large a family as you're able to have. So it is important to know in terms of hierarchy, and you'll see in a moment why this is important. Until you have a son and a daughter, you're dealing with the biblical mitzvah of Pru'er or the Torah mitzvah of Once you have a son and a daughter, you're dealing with a lesser obligation called Lashavahs. Now the reason this is very, very important and I'm going to get a little ahead of myself because I'm going to talk about this in more detail is that when a when a couple need, wants a heter for birth control and again I'll, I'll discuss more details there's a very big difference if it's before they have a son and a daughter and after they have a son and a daughter. You will find that one of them most important questions that a rabbi will ask a couple is, you know, do you already have a son and a daughter? Because you see, until they have a son and a daughter, we're dealing with a Torah requirement of procreation. So that is much harder to push aside. Once they have a son and a daughter, we still have an obligation. The obligation is La Shevest. That's an obligation. But it's a weaker obligation. And because it's a weaker obligation, it is easier to push it aside. Again, I'm not yet explaining uh, what are the factors, but just beware that before the son and daughter, you're dealing with pru or vu, which is del reisa. After the son and daughter, you're dealing with Lasheves, which is from the prophets, and it doesn't have the same severity as the mitzvah del reisa. Okay, so basically, the, the bottom line basically is, there is a mitzvah to try to have the largest family that you're able to have. Spiritually, of course, we understand that every uh, neshama that comes into the world is a great, great bracha. And uh, we also believe that uh Kodesh Baruch Hu will give every parent both the koach and the love to give to the new child, uh, as well as all the other children. And in truth, uh, as the kids get older, Parents with large families will often tell you that uh, it's actually easier with a larger family than with a smaller family because the kids entertain each other, and the kids can also, the older kids can actually be the babysitters with the younger kids. That it's often the first kid that is really drives you crazy because there's like no but no help, and uh, you know everything is on the mother and the father, mainly the mother, you know the father too. Uh, once there's more than one, uh, there's, that itself can be help in the house, etc. Okay. Uh, but be it as it may, that is the overall philosophy of Judaism that generally, and now I underline generally, generally, the larger the family, the better, children are a and the like. Now, obviously, this is going to raise two issues that we have to think about. The first is the concept of contraception. Birth control. And the second, this is going to be more chamor, is the issue of abortion. Right? These are the two mechanisms for controlling the growth of your family. Right, One would be by not getting pregnant, and the other would be by terminating a pregnancy once it happened. And uh, both of these areas are halachically problematical and they have to be addressed Let's first talk about contraception, birth control in various forms. As a general rule, we start off with the idea that halakha does not really approve of birth control unless, unless there are significant reasons for birth control. Now, it does not have to be a matter of life and death. This is very important. If it would be a matter of life and death, that it's dangerous to the mother's life, that's obvious contraception is permitted. That's it. We're not talking about that. That's simple. Even abortion would be permitted, God forbid, in a case like that. But we're talking about things that are not pikuach nefesh mamish, but things like very significant stress that the mother feels out of, you know, not able to manage her life (coughs) well. Anxiety. Uh, She might be screaming at her children. She just needs a break. So, halakhically, we actually are fairly lenient in allowing contraception because of stress, because of anxiety. Now, it gets a little tricky. Sometimes people want birth control because they want to finish college or something, or they want to, uh, you know, advance in their retirement. (coughs) And that's not really a hetero, per se. You can't say, oh, I don't want to get pregnant until I get my BA. You know, I, I, I myself, I taught in a law school for many, many years, for, for more than two decades, almost three decades. And uh, I taught men and women. It was a co- you know, co-ed school. You know, uh, it was just a law school. And uh, I had plenty of women that were pregnant in law school, and, they would often, and, and after they gave birth, they would bring uh, their babies to law school. It's not easy. It's not easy, of course. It's difficult. But it can be done, and it has been done. It's been, and these are, these are Goyim, these are not religious Jews. Uh, they, they don't even have such a commitment uh, to this. So the notion that birth control is automatically okay, just because I, I want to delay it for a while, is not really valid. But if there really is stress, if there's anxiety, or if the marriage is going through great difficulties, so it might be better for the marriage not to have another child at the time, Shalom bias. There may be Heterim for birth control. Now, as I say, some Heterim will even apply before they had a son and a daughter, before they have any kids at all. Other Heterim might only apply after they have a son and a daughter. So, on one hand, Halacha is dealing with two things. Our general idea is, no, don't do birth control. Have kids. But we recognize that people are individual and they go through different things. And people deal with stress in different ways. There are people who are very, very strong and they can roll with the punches and they can just go around with their life. Other people get more affected. And halakha recognizes that there has to be different responses. Now, that doesn't mean permanent contraception. You can, In fact, I, I, I commonly tell people, uh, I give them heterem, six months at a time, and then you have to revisit it. Those increments, just because right now, you know, you can't have another kid. It's too much. Doesn't mean you go on permanent contraception, right? So things are not all or nothing, okay? So it is important to know that there is, within the halachic world, room for contraception, particularly if you reevaluate it every six months. But then there's a second question that's very interesting. Let's assume that a couple is given a heter for contraception because of stress, because of anxiety, because of lack of shaman bias. They're given a heter to uh, practice contraception for six months and even extend it by revisiting it. We then come to a second question about method. These are two different questions. Question number one is, is contraception justified at all? If it's not, then it's not. Question two is, if it is justified, what type of method would be permitted? Now here, we run into a different halakhic issue. In terms of pru or vu, the method makes no difference. If you're not going to have kids, you're not going to have kids. So pru or vu is not involved in the question of method. But there's another issue that is very relevant in method, and that is the issue of emitting sperm in vain. Again, forgive me, I have to be a little uh, explicit here just just to understand the halachos. We know that there is an issue in the Torah, besides be fruitful and multiply, called hotzaas, this is a prohibition, hotzaas zera levatala. That means the emission of male sperm in vain. The classic example would be that male masturbation would be prohibited because the sperm comes out of the body and not in the woman's, uh, not in the woman. It just comes out of the male's body. That's called wasting seed. Now, here's the thing. Even when contraception is permitted, it must be done in such a way that doesn't waste male seed. So, let's take one again. again you used to give me for being graphic, but in halakha, you know, we have to be explicit. Let's take, for example, a male condom. Condom is a very effective birth control device, but the condom prevents the seed, the sperm, from entering the woman's body. It collects in the condom. So a male condom would not be allowed because that would be treated as the emission of sperm in vain, tantamount to masturbation. So one thing that's very important is that even if contraception is allowed, a male condom would not be allowed because of the prohibition of Saat zera, levatalla. Now, at the other extreme, a birth control pill is the best form of halachic contraception because the birth control pill regulates the ovulation cycle but it does not interfere at all with the passage of the male seed into the woman's body. So if we were to rank best and worst at the extremes, I'll talk about the middles in a moment, the typical birth control female pill is halakhically, although it'll have a big, big problem, but for, for this purpose, it's halakhically the best method. The male condom is halakhically the worst method. Actually, there's something worse than a male condom. A vasectomy. <laughs> okay, let's go worse. A vasectomy is even worse than a male condom because a vasectomy violates the prohibition against sterilization. <laughs> That's a separate thing. In other words, there is a prohibition to sterilize reproductive organs. So, in the part of a man, there's a prohibition of vasectomy. And in the part of a woman, there's a prohibition of tubal ligation. those are separate. And by the way, the prohibition against sterilization doesn't only apply to humans, it even applies to animals. So if you have to get your dog or your cat spayed, it's not so obvious you're halachically allowed to do that. You have to kind of sell it to a guy (laughs) and the guy brings it to a non-Jewish veterinarian. Okay? So I'm not dealing with that. Vasectomy, tubal ligation, unless... And again, if someone has cancer, that's a separate... But I'm, t- I'm talking about contraceptive. Okay? And I'm not talking about treatment of cancer. If someone, God forbid, has cancer, then whatever needs to be cut can be cut. That's not our question. But I'm talking about birth control. So in terms of birth control, we can say anything that is kind of a castration or a sterilization of reproductive organs is absolutely forbidden. That includes vasectomy for men, and that includes tying the tubes, tubal ligation for women. Okay, that's one thing. Second thing is condom is forbidden because since the Zera does not enter the woman's body, it is treated like masturbation. A birth control pill is actually very good because that does not interfere with the intercourse, and the Zera enters the woman's body. However, I do have to add, there is one huge problem with birth control pills. And that is, it creates havoc with the laws of NIDA. One of the little side effects of birth control pills, which in the secular world is so minor that no one even pays attention to it, is it causes little breakthrough bleeding in between your periods. No big deal, tiny little drops of blood, you have a tampon, no no problem. However, halachically, that is a huge, super huge problem because that little tiny breakthrough bleeding that is just a little annoyance can make a woman Anita. She could be Anita for months and months and months and months and won't be able to go to the mikvah. So, there are certain dosages and certain pills that are better in this so, if a woman is going, again, I'm, I'm talking about no one here is married, right? So, uh, I'm just giving you talking about things that are not no lemeisa yet. Uh, but uh, the appropriate contraceptive pill, uh, you need very, very close consultation, uh, both with a posek, a rav, and with the doctor, to try to get something that minimizes the breakthrough bleeding problems. As I say, in the secular world, it's it's a nothing, it's a no problem at all. In the halakhic world, it's really can be a catastrophic problem if uh, if you do it the wrong way, or you take the wrong dose, or you have the wrong pill. A woman could be in need for a year and not be able to go to the mikvah. Yeah, isn't there? So I've I've heard several things on this. There's like something about not looking at the blood, and then something about the size. Of like this, of that, that is very true again I'm not going to go over all the laws of India but, okay. but you are correct that there is something about the size and there is something about how you find it but the only thing okay. is that all of that applies only if the woman does not have a sensation of the oh, uterine flow okay. no, she finds spotting mm-hmm. but when she feels the blood coming coming out of her uterus then uh, she cannot ignore it and that's going to be the problem That uh, this is really uterine blood mm-hmm. this is the uterine lining shedding Uh, So, a lot of the leniencies you might have with generic spotting may not be there for the hormonal uh, spotting. Okay. Now, uh, what about other types of things? What about an IUD, for example, which is just a device implanted, right? IUD is intrauterine device. It's a small little thing, the size of this, that is implanted. You don't really need surgery. It's an an office procedure. It's in the woman's body. Uh, IUD also is a very good contraceptive device because it's high enough in the body that it does not interfere with (coughs) intercourse and, therefore, it does not impede the male sperm and, therefore, it's not masturbation. Once you deal with things, however, like diaphragms, things that block you once again get into the question of interfering. So, the point I'm making is, is, is I'm not going to go over all of the different methods, it's not Nogel and here, but it is important to understand that the contraception issue has two different components. One is, is contraception justified, and for how long? And if it's not, that's the end of the discussion. The second question is, if it is justified, what would the halakhically best method be? So method is an important issue because method could involve problems of sterilization and it can also involve issues of masturbation, etc. And that would be something that has to, has to be uh, con- considered. Okay? So it's a question of both uh, allowed at all and the second issue is going to be method. Now the truth of the matter is um, I've gotten more than one type of question where uh, women's sensitivities like the only thing that was left was a condom uh, uh, she couldn't take the hormonal, the pill because of effects on her body uh, the IUD, she had allergic reactions etc and the question then becomes that leaves condom as like the last resort and those are really, really, really hard questions because a condom is really or a vasectomy, she was actually saying she wanted a she wanted the guy to have a vasectomy. I mean, you know, there are limits as to what, what halakha will allow. And again, if it's a matter of life and death, you can do a vasectomy too. But short of life and death, vasectomy is not considered to be a permissible, uh, permissible option. Uh, because there is a prohibition in the Torah of, of sterilization and, and, and the like. Okay. Right, so that's kind of birth control. Let me, mention, let, me, let me mention one particular issue about birth control that comes up a lot. That is... Does halacha recognize the concept of spacing children? Uh, let's say, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, I, I haven't read Dr. Spock recently, but, uh, doctor, yeah, Dr. Spock, yeah, Mr. Spock is Star Trek, Dr. Spock <laughs> is the baby doctor, right, okay. Um, but, uh, you know, in the secular world they say, you know, you want to space your children. You shouldn't have children one after the other, give a few years to the child and then have another child if you want. But You just want to space children. And they often recommend uh, two to three years, at least, between, between children. Does halacha permit the notion of spacing? So, this is a very big machlokas, actually. Uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein seems to say that there's no automatic concept of spacing. If the mother is overstressed, that's one thing, but if she's healthy woman with resources, etc., there's no such thing that you automatically space. If care it, uh, as, you know, the faster you have kids, the better, no problem. On the other hand, there was a Posek who uh, died recently, uh, Rev Henkin. Do you, uh, you've heard of this, there's a seminary, a little, bit, a little bit on the modern side, Nishmat here. Uh, so it was founded by a and Henkin, and Henkin's husband was a prominent possek in the modern Orthodox community, but he was a big, big Talmud Chacham, of Yehuda Henkin. And he actually brought an interesting proof that halakha does permit spacing up to two years. Let me tell you his proof. The halakha is that in the time of the Gemara, women would commonly nurse their babies for up to two years. That was the normal nursing, and that was exclusive nursing. Now we know that when you do 100% nursing, 100% nursing, that is actually a natural contraceptive. Now the reason why it tends not to work today, the reason why nursing women still get pregnant is because most people who nurse do not do it 100%. They occasionally give a bottle or whatever it is. Uh, But if if a woman uh, exclusively gives her baby only milk that the baby gets from her breast, Uh, that is a natural contraception. So, L'Chaira, how could we allow the mother to nurse for two years? She's preventing a pregnancy from taking place. The answer is that since the nursing is for the benefit of the existing baby, we allow two years of benefit to the existing baby, even if that'll prevent a pregnancy from taking place. That's the precedent of the nursing mother. So Ref Henkin took this a little further. And he said, if the sages took the position that the benefit to the existing child overrides a possibility of a new pregnancy, then maybe that could even apply to a non-nursing mother who want, now? You see, that's it's not a proof, but but it's an analogy, a non-nursing mother who wants to give her child time, and emotional energy. You see, in other words, his analogy, and it's an analogy, it's not it's not a proof. His analogy is that we could treat the same concept of the two-year space, even for non-nursing situations, because after all, if nursing is for the benefit of the baby, then uh, time. And uh, emotional energy is also for the benefit of the baby. So he actually was willing to permit automatic two-year birth control. Actually, it wouldn't be two-year birth It would be, um, uh, you know, two-year minus nine months, whatever it is. In other words, to space the births up to two years uh, for the benefit of the benefit of the baby. So again, that's a big machlokas. And all of these shy lists, if, if when it becomes relevant to you, if it becomes relevant to you, uh, you should talk to a, a rabbi uh, about it, in terms of what the situation, uh, what the situation is. And as I mentioned before, if a marriage is rocky, and not on a good foundation, that too is a a justification for contraception, because uh, it's better to delay having a family until the marriage has been stabilized, in a good uh, in a good uh, a good way. Now, let me mention an interesting thing. All right, so this is the mitzvah of pru or vu, the mitzvah of having children, and then we talked about contraception. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about abortion. Now abortion, of course, you understand, is pretty more chamor than contraception uh, because uh, contraception is simply preventing a pregnancy. Abortion is terminating an existing pregnancy Uh, within the uh, woman's body. Um, As you know, if you follow American news, uh, abortion is now, uh, once again, a very, very big issue now. It's going to become much more important. Uh, In the 1970s, the Supreme Court uh, issued the famous or infamous opinion, Roe v. Wade, uh, that said that women have a constitutional guaranteed right to terminate a pregnancy uh, and that means no state could prohibit abortion abortion was a federal constitutional right and that was the law for many many years and just a few months ago uh, but there was a leak of the opinion in advance which was fascinating this had never happened before that a whole opinion of the supreme court came out ahead of time And as as a law professor uh, that interested me more than the abortion decision. How how did such a leak come out? And uh, somebody's going to be in big trouble. They're going to find some clerk who did it. And uh, well, on one hand, that clerk will lose their status in the legal profession. On the other hand, they may get millions of dollars for TV. So I, I think they'll become cele- I think they'll become a celebrity. So I think monetarily they'll do okay. Uh, but as you know, the Supreme Court, the conservative court that Donald Trump appointed, actually overruled Roe v. Wade. Now. Just to be sure you understand the legal background, overruling Roe versus Wade does not mean abortion is against the law. You understand that? It just means it's no longer a guaranteed right. So every state decides on their own if it's going to be allowed or not going to be allowed. So they didn't rule abortion is illegal. They just ruled every state has the right to make its own decision. You understand that? Which means the following. In very liberal states like New York, like California, like Massachusetts, Life will go on. The same abortions that they did before when there was Roe versus Wade, they'll do now. That's not going to change. However, in states that are more conservative and right-wing, like Oklahoma, like Texas, more Christian states, they are. They, in fact, they will, and they already have. They've made restrictions on abortion. Right. So uh, it's going to be a... An issue in which, instead of every state allowing abortion, it's going to be some will allow, some won't allow, etc. So the question is, what does Jewish law say about abortion? So it's a bit complicated because Jewish law actually has Jewish law has two parts. There is the Jewish law of the Torah that applies to Jews. And then there are the seven commandments of Noah that apply to non-Jews. It's, a, it's complicated, meaning maybe I shouldn't call it Jewish law. Let's call it Hashem's law. Hashem gave two laws. He gave a law to the Jewish people that we call the Torah. And He gave a law to the rest of the world that is called the Noachite Code, or the Seven Commandments of Noah, Sheva Mitzvot B'nai right? you may you, I'm sure many of you know that one of the Rebbe's Miftsaim, one of his projects, was specifically directed to non-Jews, not to make them Jewish. Judaism does not try to convert people to Judaism. In fact, if you want to convert to Judaism, initially we try to discourage you. If you then persevere, you know, we welcome you, but we don't go out and try to convert you. But we do have one aspect of proselytization. We try to convert non-Jews to follow the seven Noahide laws. And in fact, you, if you Google Noahide code, you'll actually see websites run by Gentiles, by Goyim, which talk about following the Noahide code, the Noahide laws. It's a growing movement. I'm not gonna say it's a gigantic movement, but it is a growing movement. Uh, Chabad was uh, very very, uh, instrumental, but uh, also non-Chabad also uh, were involved in the Noahide laws. So it's interesting that the Noahide law of abortion is stricter than the Torah law of abortion. That is, under the Noahide law of abortion, terminating a pregnancy, if a non-Jew terminates a pregnancy, that is a capital crime. There's a death penalty sentence. It is treated the same as murder. And we derive that from this week's Parsha, where it says, he who spills the blood of a person in a person, his blood shall be spilled. Shofech dam ha adam, adam. So, what is What is a person in a person? That describes a fetus. He who spills the blood of a person in a person, his blood shall be spilled. So under the Noah... Now, that's not, that's not the part of the Torah that's talking to Jews. That's talking about the Noah and his sons. So abortion under the Noahide Code is a capital crime. Yeah? Does so that apply also to the whole idea of, like, come the come nefesh, like the even like, to preserve the life? Yeah, so that, that's a very, very excellent question. I, I'll get to that and as you're asking the question. Would there be a heter of nefesh under the noachite yeah. laws? Very excellent question. It's a machlo- It is a machlo- okay. Yeah, Yes, so I'll, I'll get to that. But that, that, that's a very good observation. Yeah. Um, is there any consideration of the age or stage? We'll, we'll, we'll get we'll get to it. There, there's I want to I want to lay, lay out the introduction, but yeah, we'll get to the age of the fetus and uh, what about fetal abnormalities? What about genetic uh, problems? Uh, and uh, pikuach nefesh of the mother. Yeah, well, I will get to it. In other words, I, but I want to lay out the foundation uh, first. Now, abortion for Jews is not a capital crime. It's a sin, but it's not a capital crime. How do I know it's not a capital crime? We know it from the following text: the Torah in Parshat's Mishpatim has a case about two men who are fighting. They're duking it out. They're punching each other. And a pregnant woman, kind of a very foolish thing to do, she steps in the middle to try to stop the fight. And she gets punched hard in the belly. And that results in a miscarriage. So you may recall... The Torah says that we penalize the guy that punched her with a monetary fine, compensation. He has to pay the value. How do you assess the value? Some some monetary value for the loss of fetal life. The implication is that the termination of the pregnancy is not an act of murder. It's It's only a financial crime. Does it matter that it's accidental or not scenario? So So that's, again, a very excellent question. People are asking really good questions today. And that is, well, wait a second. That doesn't prove anything. Maybe it's not murder, not because it's a fetus. Maybe it's not murder because it was unintentional. It was accidental. Very good question. Uh, But the short answer is, although this will not make a lot of sense to you, that... Anything which, if, 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 if done intentionally, would be murder never carries a financial penalty, even if it's done unintentionally, meaning capital crimes do not carry monetary punishments. So an example would be uh, that if you shot somebody and they died, you would not have to pay the cleaning bill on their clothes or on their carpets or the like because capital crimes only have capital punishment, they do not have monetary punishments, and that's even if it's an unintentional capital crime. So there is a difference between Noahide law and Torah law, but it doesn't seem to make a practical difference. Because the bottom line is abortion is forbidden both under the Noahide Code and under the Torah law. Yeah, under the Noahide Code, it's a capital crime. But we don't impose capital punishment there. We don't have the base things to do it. So under the Noachite Code, it is a capital crime. Under the Torah Code, it's a non-capital crime. Okay. <clears throat> but the bottom line is pretty clear. Abortion is normally forbidden. And it's forbidden not only for Jews... Right, that's the important point. It's forbidden for non So then the question becomes are there bases for leniency? So let me go over a few a few different circumstances, some of which pick up the questions. There is a view that says abortion is permitted if it is with in 40, that's very early, 40 days of conception. Now, within 40 days, a lot of times a woman doesn't even know she's pregnant. But because the Gemara has a Lushum, that until a fetus or an embryo, actually it's called an embryo at that point, until an embryo is 40 days old, it's like mere water. There's not enough development of human development yet it can be terminated indiscriminately. So, now this is an opinion, and not everybody holds this way, there is an opinion that will allow abortion of a fetus, actually not called a fetus yet, of an embryo that is less than 40 days from conception. Now as I say, most of the time a woman will not know that she's pregnant. However, this would justify what is commonly called the morning after pill. The morning after pill is actually well, this is an argument how it works, but but one of the ways, one of the suggested ways that it works is it's a very early abortion, meaning to say if the egg was fertilized, a fertilized egg, the morning after pill will prevent implantation of the fertilized egg and the wall of the uterus. So it is not contraception. Contraception is when you prevent fertilization. When you prevent implantation, that is early abortion. So sometimes, say, if a woman had unprotected intercourse, so the morning after pill would be something she would do to uh, not get pregnant. So although technically it is an abortion, those opinions who allow pre-40-day abortions would allow it. Now, please make a note that this is not universally agreed upon, and there are opinions who are strict, and they prohibit abortion from the moment of conception, even prior to 40 days. But there is this 40-day thing. Second issue, and this is for sure okay, abortion is permitted if continuation of the pregnancy would endanger as a risk to the mother's life. This is a pikuach nefesh exception. <coughs> now, in some cases, the pikuach nefesh is obvious. A mother has a heart condition, mother has cancer, and the stress of carrying and, or carrying and or delivering, sometimes it's the pregnancy, sometimes it's the childbirth, would be such a strain on her vital organs that it could precipitate her death. Abortion is permitted even in the ninth month. Okay, that's called pikuach nefesh, of the mother. Where things get tricky is, what about pikuach nefesh, due to psychological factors. And a good example of this would be the problem of unwanted pregnancy due to rape or incest. Let's imagine a single girl, again, God forbid, got raped, or there was incest, which usually would involve rape as well. Now, a lot of people who are against abortion will will often say, well, I'm against abortion unless it's rape or incest. Halacha is usually against abortion even if it is rape or incest. There's no automatic rape or incest exception. Just because the child was conceived by rape or incest So what? That's not the child's fault. I mean, could you kill the baby who was already born because he was from rape or incest? You certainly could not. But halacha would say this. This is where it gets a little subtle. Rape or incest is not a heter in and of itself. But if the circumstances of conception are so traumatic that they could impact on the psychological health of the mother. Ad k'day kach that she might become suicidal. Then, halacha might allow the abortion, not because of rape or incest, but they would allow the abortion because of pikuach nefesh. Now, what that means is, that very much depends on the woman. There is A woman who is literally devastated, falling apart, unable to cope, on the verge of a total psychotic breakdown, which is certainly life threatening. And then there's a woman who obviously has been scarred, but she's able to take it in stride. In other words, it's not a one size fits all. It's not going to be every time it's rape or incest, (coughs) we allow abortion. But there would have to be an assessment by a, psychi- by a psychologist or psychiatrist as to whether this would just... It's a serious issue. In other words, abortion is a very serious issue. Pikuach Nefesh is a very serious issue. But you can't just kind of blithely either assume no abortion or assume yes abortion. The decision... Right, you, don't look at the, you don't look at the yellow pages for rabbi and call up you know, some rabbi you who know, doesn't know you, He doesn't know the situation. But this is a very, very difficult situation. They tell the story, it may be an urban legend, I'm not sure if it's true, about a religious space Yaakov girl in New York who was uh, raped by, by a black man. I'm mentioning the, the uh, race for a reason, you'll see. And one could imagine that she was, I mean, to any person this would be traumatic, but to a religious girl, even, even much more so, and uh, she really wanted to jump off a building. It turned out she was carrying twins. <coughs> she wanted to jump off a building. Uh, she wanted to kill herself. Her parents got her to see Ramosha Feinstein. And Ramosha Feinstein gave her, spoke to her more than three hours. And he told her, you know that you're carrying Jewish children. They are Jewish children. And why Hashem? gave them to you in such a har- horrific way, I don't know, but they are Jewish children and you can raise them to be tzaddikim and tell me they chachamim." And the story goes that that convinced her to keep these children and she had a sense of mission. I mentioned the rapist was black because the children were born as uh, with, uh, uh, Afri- African-American features. And the story goes that she never got married but she raised the two boys as a single mother and they both became rabbis and and a source of great, great nachas to her and to her family. Now, maybe, you know, I don't know, sometimes these stories might be made up, I'm not sure. But it, it shows you that there is a way of taking even the greatest tragedies of life and turning them into brachos in some way. But be it as it may, if indeed the mother's life is in danger, we would permit the abortion. So I mentioned two grounds. I'll mention other grounds next week. I mentioned less than 40. And I mentioned bikuach nefesh of the mother. Uh, next week, I we'll mention some other grounds. Did you want to say something? Yeah. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Um, so in the case of woman being sexu- sexually assaulted by out of wedlock, what is the status of the children? Uh, This is an important point to keep in mind. Uh, If a woman is raped or sexually assaulted outside of wedlock, the children actually have no disability whatsoever. They are regular Jews. Uh, No problem. Now, if a married woman either committed adultery or was even raped, then the children, unfortunately, are called mamzer. Now, a mamzer is still a Jew, but a mamzer cannot marry uh, regular Jews. A mamzer can marry a converted Jew or another mamzer, or the like. So, uh, at least if the woman is single, the good news, if we can talk about good news, the good news is there is no uh, pagam, there is no disability on the children. Uh, The one disability is that the girl, if the rapist was not Jewish, which is usually going to be the case, the girl cannot marry a Cohen. I don't know if you know this, I don't know if I mentioned this before, a little halakha to be aware of, uh, if a non-Jewish man has a child with a Jewish woman, even if it's through marriage, it's not halakha to be a marriage, so the child is Jewish, right? No, no, no question. But if the child is a girl, she cannot marry a kohen. So a, a woman with a non-Jewish father is not allowed to marry a kohen. That's uh, one of the rules... Of Kohanim that is sometimes not not widely known. But that's something to be aware of. Okay? Alrighty. You have a good week, a good Chodesh, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. you.